0: Let's open up our Bibles. We're in uh, the book of Acts. We're in Acts 6, and we're going to just cover the first seven verses of Acts. Um, but before we jump into that, let me pray really quick. Father God in heaven, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you that that you have given us your strength to stand um, invincibly, even in great conflict and trial and testing and even against the devil's lies and the schemes that he brings, that you cause us to stand by your strength and in your strength alone. We pray that we would be a people humble, humbled by our great weakness, but also humbled by your great grace and the power that you bring through that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two um, ways in which I want you to walk away from this morning's message. Uh, there are two things. There are two things you could say that I want you to walk away from this message excited to do. Number one, I want you to walk away from this morning's message excited to learn doctrine, to hear preaching, to receive teaching in God's Word. I want you to be excited to to learn God's Word like never before. And if that excitement causes you in the morning to rip open your Bible and start reading with hunger and desire, that will be worth it to me. But I also want you to walk away from this message with a zeal to do something else. Not just to learn doctrine, but I also eagerly, prayerfully hope that you walk away from this morning's message with a zeal and enthusiasm to plunge toilets. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) See how that works out. Um, Now, if that's not motivating, which maybe that's not very motivating to you, uh, let's try this. Let's try this for motivation for why you should listen to me this morning. Um, Today's title, I have titled in this way, The Priorities, Pitfalls, and practices of spiritual stud muffins. (laughs) So ladies, if you're looking for a spiritual stud muffin, examine this passage closely, because this will give you detailed knowledge for how to find a spiritual stud muffin. And men... You need no other motivation than to know that the ladies are listening to see what kind of guy they're really after. So, that's what we're going to learn about today. Um, Now, just to summarize where we're at in Acts by now, all of Jerusalem has been filled with the knowledge of the Apostles' teaching. It is everywhere. Um, The Apostles' teaching is dominating the entire city. Matter of fact, we've seen this especially just just in Acts 5, right, the, the high priests are upset and angry at the apostles because the, the message of Jesus is spreading throughout the entire city and they cannot stop it. And this causes them to respond in anger. And, and all throughout Acts 2, all the way through Acts 5, we've been seeing snapshots of spiritual growth, haven't we? We've been seeing spiritual growth in, in how it is bold and how it is growing and expanding constantly and multiplying. Um, And this is really what we're looking at throughout Acts. We're just seeing uh, God's word and God's work growing, growing, growing. Matter of fact, the theme kind of of the entire book of Acts that I've chosen is the unstoppable acts of Jesus, the unstoppable acts of Jesus, because we just see when Jesus is after something, when Jesus is determined to do something in our world, it is unstoppable. And that's what we kind of saw yesterday, last week um, in Acts 5. But we've also seen, throughout Acts 2 through Acts 5, we've also seen snapshots of another kind. We've seen snapshots of the devil's devices to try to derail spiritual growth. He's been trying all sorts of different ways to frustrate, disturb, and disrupt spiritual growth. You could say it like that. Uh, this is this has all just been tactic after tactic after tactic of the devil. So you you should listen to this. You should listen to this because you want to pursue spiritual growth, because you want to become the kind of individual that God wants you to become. And you should also listen to this because you want to know your enemy really well. Uh, the devil wants to derail your spiritual growth, especially when it's young. And when it's growing, he wants to disrupt and stop it. Why? Because believers who are spiritually growing are believers that are spiritually witnessing and witnessing to other people. And that's what the devil wants to stop. He wants to stop your spiritual growth so he can destroy your spiritual witness. Now, this morning, we're going we're to answer two questions. And once again, we're, we're trying to paint a picture, so to speak, of what it is to be a, a spiritual stud muffin, you could say. Oh, but but really, we're going to follow two questions here that I'm going to try to answer for you. Uh, first off, what are... Some of the devil's tactics that he uses to try to de- derail your spiritual growth. What are the tactics the devil uses? We're going to kind of use this sermon as kind of a, a summary of everything we've learned so far, but also really focus on chapter six here. The second question that we're going to try to answer is how should you respond to the devil's tactics in all of these ways? So, first off, What are the tactics that the devil uses to try to derail your spiritual growth? Let's look. Number one, he's going to try to shame you into silence. He's going to try to shame you into silence. He's going to try to make you feel like you are a fool and you are alone. And we saw this in Acts 4, right? Oh, the apostles were beginning to see some growth, and then the the chief priests and the council gathered them around in Acts chapter four, verse two, and they were greatly annoyed because these men were teaching the people and proclaiming that Jesus, uh, uh, and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, and they began to ask them questions. And the whole tone of Acts four is, "Why would you believe in that?" Nobody who is. Intellectual believes in the supernatural idea of the resurrection, that is foolishness. You're all alone. You're not, you're not one of these smart people. They try to shame you. Why are they trying to shame you? They're trying to shame you into silence. We see this all throughout the Bible, right? When, when, when God's people are growing, when exciting things are happening, in, in the life of those who want to follow and serve and honor God, we see the devil's tactic of trying to shame you into silence. You remember the story of the blind man from John chapter 9. Um, Jesus just heals him, and his entire world is transformed, right? And then then he starts getting in trouble because the religious leaders aren't too happy about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And And then, of course, the religious leaders pull in the blind man's parents, and the blind man's parents just just are real slinks, and they just refuse to acknowledge anything that has happened. Why? Well, John tells us in his Gospel in John 9, because they were afraid of being cast out, of being outcasts in the religious world of their day. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And that's how the devil wants to silence you. He wants to silence you through shame. I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be separated. I don't want to be thought a fool. He's going to try to cause you through fear. He's going to try to cause you through intimidation to be silent. That's how he's going to try to throw off your spiritual growth, through shame. I'm alone. I don't want to be a, look like a fool. How, how do you respond to this? How, how should you respond to this when the devil tries to shame you? Well, we've seen in Acts over and over again that you should respond with boldness. With boldness. An eagerness, even, to follow Jesus, even if none go with you, right? That is, that is what has marked the apostles throughout it all. They're, they're willing in, in Acts chapter 4 to say, whether it is right in uh, the right sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. We cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. They've essentially said, hey, listen, I'm going to follow Jesus regardless of what it costs me. Regardless of who thinks I'm an idiot, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm just going to let it happen, to boldly follow Jesus. And we saw this last week in in Acts 5, 29. Peter says to their continued questioning, We must obey God rather than men. Just boldly determine in your heart every single day, Today I am going to seek to serve and to follow Jesus. That is a bold stance that you can take. That is how you respond to shame. No, I'm following Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one that holds all things in the palm of his hand, and also the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I am following him, regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what men say about me. I am following Jesus. How about another um, tactic of the devil to derail young faith? He, he wants to threaten you into timidness, to to threaten you into timidness. and this is where we talk more about actual persecution—not just shame, but actual infliction of pain on you for following Jesus. It's—it's it's kind of the sense of hey, look at what we are going to do to you if you follow Jesus. You're going to be—you're going to be cut off. You're—you're you're going to get hurt. Some people you love are going to get hurt if you follow Jesus with this kind of boldness that you want to follow him with. They're going to try to threaten you. Why? To make you timid, to make you fearful. It's it's similar to the shame of silence, but I I see also uh, the devil doesn't just focus on shame. He also actually loves to physically attack the church of God. We don't see that as much in our world. But it's definitely happening in the Church of God all throughout the world. You see this particularly in the Church of China and any church that wants to follow Jesus with boldness. And we've seen this also in Acts, Acts 5 in particular. You, you've seen that the apostles in verse 18 of Acts 5 were thrown into a public prison. Right? This is going to uh, stigmatize these apostles for their life, or at least that was the plan. Right. These are criminals, and that's who you're going to be. You're going to be put in a place where your reputation is going to be no, no better than mud. And then we even see in verse 40, after they can do nothing to stop the apostles, they are beaten physically. They're going to try to threaten and hurt and inflict pain on you to make you timid. How do you respond to this? How how do you get through this? Well, I I would say we have a model here in Acts also of another response. Boldness, yes, but also faith. The the book of Acts shows that we should trust God's plan even through our suffering. God has a marvelous plan in in his purposes even through the suffering church. Matter of fact, it seems like it is his his main plan to spread the gospel through our suffering. Weakness. We saw this in First Peter. Actually, God uses suffering in the believer's life to magnify His message, to make it look greater, to to increase your witness. And you should uh, you should approach a threat of suffering for Jesus as, "Wow, this is God could really use this to make a, a weak person like me great." Matter of fact, that's what we see modeled in the Apostle Paul. If you've read Second Corinthians at all, you see that he is responding to um, a lot of people that are thinking, hey, if you're an apostle, you should be strong and powerful. You should have no problems in your life. You should have prosperity and wealth and power and strength. That is what an apostle of Jesus Christ should look like. But Paul goes the exact opposite way in Second Corinthians, doesn't he? he? He says, no, an apostle is known by their weakness, by, by their pain, by their struggle. He goes on and on in 2 Corinthians about his weakness. Why? Not just because weakness is great, but because he sees himself as a clay pot. That's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A jars of clay it 's just a a it 's a it 's a clay pot, probably baked mud. I was just reading about this this last week. very interesting. it is very exposable uh, or, or disposable sorry, it is a disposable thing right? You put junk in clay pots because they 're cheap and inexpensive and it 's also very durable actually it holds up well under a lot of rough treatment right uh, in in a sense, God has determined that his uh, his apostles would be Weak-looking things, so that they could withstand suffering for the gospel. But also, but what he says there in 2 Corinthians 4 is, is precisely what he's talking about. It's so that when you offer someone the gospel, you're not offering yourself. You're offering the gospel. The point of being a weak individual is so that you can say, and look at the treasure that I hold in my hands. A God who is all-powerful, who holds me in the palm of his hand, who, who, who keeps me, who sanctifies me, who loves me. You are called to be weak so that God's grace can be more magnified, so that you can so you can greater testify to the riches of knowing Jesus Christ. Sometimes God uses weakness, and that's what you need to respond to by faith, God's sovereign plan. Let's look at another tactic of the devil to try to disrupt your spiritual growth. He's going to try to corrupt you. Into mutinous, so we see he's going to shame you into silence he 's going to threaten you into timidness and he's also going to try to corrupt you into mutinous and this is where we get to Acts five, the beginning of Acts five, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, Satan and you get this you get this kind of sense from reading through Acts two through five as well that Satan attacks the church from every single angle right in Acts chapter. 4, it's from the outside. In Acts chapter 5, it's from the inside. In Acts chapter 5, the second half, it's from the outside. And in today's chapter, chapter 6, it's it's from the inside. Uh, Satan will use every single angle to try to weaken you and disrupt spiritual growth. And, And sometimes that's from the outside, but more powerfully, sometimes it's from the inside. He wants to corrupt you from the inside. And he wants to corrupt you so that you will be mute, so that you'll have nothing to say to the world inside jobs are the most destructive actually, the most devastating. Um, The attacks by the devil that are outside you from people mocking you and shaming you, those have an impact of actually strengthening your spiritual growth, increasing your spiritual growth even. But it's the attacks from the inside of the church that are particularly dangerous because those corrupt you from the inside. They destroy you. They weaken you from the inside. They cut the legs out from under your witness altogether. Uh, Sin in a a body like the church corrupts and weakens the whole body. uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump that's speaking about um, kind of like this little fermented piece of dough that if you put it with the rest of the dough, it will, by the morning, spread that that fermentation, that corruption, that leaven to the entire lump, right? Sin has this impact in a body, in any kind of group, to kind of spread weakness throughout the entire body if it is not dealt with correctly, um, And we we see this in Corinthians, and we see this in the church all over the place, when believers seek to be tolerant to sin, when they seek to be friendly with sin, when when they want to come to church and also be comfortable in sin in their life, it leads to a definite weakening matter of fact, it weakens the very gospel message that you're seeking to present. What's the gospel you're seeking to present? That Christ died for a purpose, that Christ died for a reason to set you free from sin and guilt so that you can rejoice in serving Jesus. And when you are tolerant of sin, you you actually have no gospel to present, because sin's not a big deal, and then Jesus died for no reason, right? It it will cut out the, the very legs out from your witness because... What's the point of the gospel? If sin isn't a big deal, what's the point of the gospel? How do we respond to um, Satan's inner attempts to corrupt us? Well, we, we saw this soberly in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, didn't we? We saw that you need to pursue purity even when it hurts, even when it's very costly to you. You need to pursue and prioritize purity in your life because it has damaging effects, not just on you, on other people around you. I've said this before, um, secret individual sin never stays secret or individual for long in its consequences, right? It always impacts you. And it never just impacts you, it impacts everybody around you. It weakens everybody around you. That's why we need to deal with it soberly and seriously. Now let's look at our our last kind of tactic of the devil, and this will get us really into our passage today. Um, He wants to distract you into dividedness. He wants to distract you into dividedness. He might not be able to silence you. He might not be able to threaten you into timidity. He might not be able to corrupt you into purity. And if he can't do that, he'll try another tactic. What is that? He'll try to make you busy. Busy, busy, busy for good things, but not the greatest thing, perhaps. Uh, He could could distract you with sinful things, overtly sinful things, but more likely he's going to try to distract you with good things. Um, Things that are actually important. School, friendships, future, Uh, busyness even in the church. He might even try to distract you with some of those things because he always is willing, he is always willing to let you have a few good things if that means you give up on the greatest things, the most important things, the priorities that you should pursue in life. What do we find in the church here? We find that they had a problem. The church was growing so fast that they were kind of Beyond their ability to effectively serve and minister to the church itself. Look what it says there in Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's going on here? There's a complaint. Between one group in the church and the other group in the church. Now, the Hellenist refers not to Gentiles, but it refers to Jews who are Greek. So they're from kind of outside of, um, Jerusalem area. They, they, they're, they're Jews. For sure they're Jews, but they live in Syria or Asia and they have moved back or they have really adopted a lot of Greek culture and practices and they live in Jerusalem. But they're, they're Greek speaking, maybe perhaps. And then there's the Hebrews who are, who, who live from here and maybe speak Aramaic or Hebrew even. There was a division between them. Now, notice what the problem is and notice what the problem is not. The, pro- the problem does not seem, from my reading, to be that there was sinful favoritism actually happening, or that partiality or factions were actually happening. Perhaps it was beginning to happen, but this was actually not the problem that we see in the early church. What was the problem? It was the accusion, uh, accusation of these things. There was a complaint, Right? There were some people in the church murmuring against other people in the church. Hey, we feel like we're not getting as much resources as you. We feel like we're not getting uh, as much uh, time as you. Basically, though, what the problem was here, and and we we get this from the way the the apostles respond to it. The problem here seems to be that the church was just lacking some needed organization. They're, They're... they, they couldn't keep going on the way they were, with just the apostles and everybody else kind of gathering around them. They needed some people to be overseeing ministry in the church. The church needed organization. So what's the devil's tactic here? Well, sometimes he is going to create sin out of something good to grow greater and deeper sin, Right? So he's going he's gonna to turn something, a good problem, which is the church is growing, into, into a sin. Oh, we're being neglected because everybody's focusing on other people. There's new people here and I'm being neglected. Or I'm the new person here and I'm being neglected. He's going to create sin out of something good in order to cause greater and deeper sin to grow. Or he's going to make the church so busy with good things that they're going to be unable to pursue the things, the priorities that God has for them, right? The church has two ways they can respond to this. Number one, they can say, oh no, this is important. Right? It's important to take care of widows. James 1.27 says, it is righteousness, true religion, to care for the orphans and the widows. We need to just stop everything and start focusing on spreading and caring for these widows. That's that would actually be a good response, right? We're going to care for people. But notice that's not the response that the church takes. It takes it all. They take another response, and this kind of guides us and directs us in how we should respond when the devil wants to distract us with good things and create divisions through those good things. Let's look at this. Um, believe it or not, I have 4 subpoints. So, if you are here at point number four, you're right where you're supposed to be. Now just start a whole new message right now, and we're going to talk about four more ways. Uh, four responses to potential distractions, or potential divisions that are caused by distractions. How should we respond to this problem? This is what we're going to see in the church. We're going to see you need to take division seriously. You need to cement your priorities. You need to pursue order by grace, and you need to anticipate God's greater purposes. That's how you should respond to divisions that are trying to, or distractions that are trying to divide you. Let's look at those one at a time. Number one, take division seriously. We need to have a soft heart. We need to have a soft heart for even a hint of division among us, right? When you're at Winter Retreat and you see two students not getting along together, you need to have a soft heart for that, a concern for that. Come between them and say, hey, can I help you? Can I help you reconcile? Division is a terrible thing. Matter of fact, we see in the Bible that division is deadly. It is spiritually deadly to you. Let's look at the deadly nature of um, spiritual division. Turn in your Bibles, keep a hand in Acts there, but turn in your Bibles to Romans 16:17. Romans 16:17. Paul's right here at the end of his letter to the Romans. and he kind of puts a few final instructions here. And we, and we notice, first off, what he says is you need to be cautious of division because divisions put obstacles in the way of the purpose of the gospel, and the purpose of right doctrine. Divisions are putting up obstacles, they're putting up roadblocks right there, right where the, the gospel, right, right where doctrine is trying to go, divisions are trying to stop you, and put up obstacles. Notice what he says in Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. They create obstacles. The, the goal of doctrine in the church for believers is love and grace and service to one another. That is the goal, and divisions are trying to disrupt that. Uh, they 're trying to put an obstacle right there. The goal of the gospel is to promote a loving unity in humility in the body of believers. right The, the goal of the gospel the goal of the gospel is to say, "Wow, Jesus loves all of us. He has died and purchased all of us." Therefore, we are going to be united under his word. It it produces this humility of mind. But what does division do? Division does the opposite. It says, I'm going to take this side issue, and I'm going to make it more important than our unity that we share in Christ. That's that's what division does. Division makes big things into little things, and little things into things. Big things. That's what division wants to do. It wants to create an obstacle for the purpose of the gospel, which is to create unity. But then also notice what he says there in verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Notice also, divisions usually come from someone. And usually that someone is someone spiritually immature. Matter of fact, they are filled with fleshly passions, sinful passions and desires. That is what's controlling them. Matter of fact, if you look over in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, you see where divisions come from. And the kind of Christians that divisions come from are immature Christians. And they're particularly dangerous, immature Christians, because they think they're so mature the Corinthian church thought they had so many gifts and were so mature, and this led to an intense, divisive nature in them, and that actually showed their true spiritual immaturity, right? They were acting like mere humans that didn't have the Holy Spirit at all, that didn't have the truth of the gospel at all. Notice how deadly divisions can be. They deceive you, They corrupt you, and then they block the very purpose of the gospel. Divisions can destroy a group of believers very quickly, and we need to be careful about them. We need to take divisions seriously. Move back to Acts 6. Um, Notice what the apostles don't do in response to these divisions. They don't say to these widows, Now listen, widows, you guys just need to toughen up. I mean, think of the starving kids in Africa. At least you have something. They don't do that. Um, they don't also say, hey, this isn't a big sin. This is just kind of a relational issue. We're not going to deal with this. They, they also don't say, hey, we have more important things to do. You guys need to solve this problem yourself. They take this seriously. And and maybe not because the situation is actually happening, probably in some ways it was, because it was an organizational issue, but they take it seriously because they know where division will lead. And that's why we need to be quick to make peace, quick to try to reconcile to people that are frustrated with one another. Because we know where sin will lead. It can lead to deadly results in our life. Matter of fact, look what they say in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They got everybody. They got everybody involved who was a part of the situation. That's what you have to do in these situations. And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice that. Notice that. Um, Satan doesn't need a big offense. To create division, he just needs some small little rift, and he can create a big offense out of a small little rift. We need to though have a quiet response. Notice how they respond. Uh, they they respond not by just spreading themselves thin, but they respond by cementing their priorities. So this is number two. The second response you need to have when Satan wants to divide you through distractions is you need to cement your priorities. What what are the main things? What are we supposed to be after as a church? What am I supposed to be after as a believer? Notice we already read this section, but the the church is facing this crushing weight of a social problem. And by the way, welcome to the world. There's always a crushing weight of some sort of social problem. We could spend ourselves endlessly trying to just solve all of the social issues in our world, and we wouldn't even scratch the surface of those problems. The churches are facing all of these problems, and notice how they respond. They don't respond by saying, this issue isn't important, but they do respond with, this issue must be dealt with in order, and with grace. Uh, they don't respond by saying, these things need to be done instead of preaching. They, they do respond by saying, these things need to be done, but they need to be done out of the fruit of preaching and teaching. And they need to be done in response to preaching and teaching in the church. We, we must be preaching and teaching. We must be praying so that these ministries can happen. These ministries are the fruit of preaching. These ministries are the fruit of prayer. They are not the root of all of these activities. The church's, you can say it this way, the church's vital strength for practical ministry comes from a deep understanding of God and what He has called us to do. It clarifies in our mind what our mission is, what we should be after, what we should really be seeking, and how we we should be uh, thinking while we're serving. That's why we need preaching and teaching and not just get together to serve one another. We need to get together to grow in our understanding of who God is and what He's called us. And you could say it this way, the more preaching you listen to, the more zeal you will have for good work. The the more understanding you have, the more practical worship you will show, because you understand why you're doing these things. You will not serve with a bad attitude, because you will know of the grace of God, in Christ Jesus in particular, that while he was rich, he became poor, so that you, being poor, might become rich. That, that floods your mind while you're serving, and you have joy in service. What are the priorities that these, uh, the church leaders focused on? Especially the leaders. What should, what should you get excited about when your leaders focus on these things? The Word of God. And prayer. They invested heavy time in truth. And notice also they invested heavy time in prayer. Notice the Word of God and prayer always go together. And notice these aren't just for your leaders. These are the ones who are to be examples to you. You should be people that are marked by a desire to understand and to know the Word of God. And you're marked by prayer. Because prayer and the Word of God is vitally connected. I'll I'll show you. Notice, Notice what prayer does. We see this all throughout the Bible. Prayer promotes a spirit of dependence. Prayer puts you in the right frame of mind, right? I, when I pray over God's word, my reading of God's word is completely different when I approach it through prayer. Prayer also produces boldness. Remember that thing we wanted so much, boldness? How did, how did the apostles, how did the church gain in boldness? We saw in Acts 4, they prayed and they were filled with boldness, Notice also, prayer provides spiritual alertness. It it makes you sensitive to divisions. It also makes you sensitive to sin in your life. It makes you sensitive to God's Word. It helps illuminate God's Word to you. And also, it's very exciting, prayer prepares hearers for the gospel. That's what we see. That's what we see in in 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. Mark Stuckey talked about this, and I, I love this verse. It prepares people. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have the faith. Notice that if you're not praying, your ministry, your witness is hindered. So, prayer and the word are vitally connected to your spiritual growth, and you should be excited about that in your leaders, especially when they cement these priorities. Let's look at another response. Pursue order in grace. Pursue order in grace. There's this book that I love about the church, it's called The Trellis and the Vine, and it describes the church in, in, in this term of like a vine that needs a trellis. A trellis is one of those ladder things that you put up against a wall and a vine grows up it, or if you've got a trellis like mine in the backyard and you have not an ounce of green thumb in your body, it's just there. Just, just a trellis, just doing nothing, but it sure looks nice. But it's quite worthless and and actually producing any vines, right? You you need two things to have a flourishing spiritual maturity. You need order, but you also need spiritual life. The church is the same way, right? The church is like a big vine branch, right? It's growing, it's increasing, it's multiplying, it's growing in strength through the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, right? But, if the church does not have order, structure in its life, what's gonna, it's going to be hindered. It's going to be hindered from achieving the growth that is possible, right? You can have a vine branch that's just kind of on the ground, kind of floating around like this, and it will not produce the kinds of fruit that a vine will on a trellis, right? And if you don't have a trellis in your life, you're actually also going to be restricting that ability to grow. Or you can say it this way, chaos and disorder in the church hinders growth. It hinders it. Structure is good for your spiritual growth. On the same time, when people are overstretched, um, when, or sorry, when people are overstructured, that actually ignores people, and that also hinders growth. You can have a lot of structures, a lot of activities, but nobody's coming because nobody's alive. Because people aren't focusing on people. You need to have both, right? You need to have a focus on people, but also a willingness to pursue structure in your life. That's why we as a church try to pursue both, right? We try to put structures in your life to help you grow, but we also want to put relationships in your life to spur you on in growth. That's why we do small groups, right? We, we, we want to spur you on through structure to pursue spiritual growth. All things need to be done decently and in order, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, and I love this, the New Testament responded to all these pressing problems by organizing and distributing responsibilities. Now, for those of you who are wondering, what in the world does any of this message have to do with me finding the love of my life in the spiritual stud muffin? (laughs) Wonder no more. Here we are. Notice This is very important for you. Verse 3, the apostles say, Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And then notice verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and this is where I get in trouble, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. I want you to notice a few things about these guys. First off, they were Hellenists. They had Greek names. Why, I can't read them notice the grace of the church there, there is not a, uh, a, a rift of a power struggle in this church, no, they choose all Hellenists they're like, we just want to love and care for you and we're going to choose men that you will feel most loved and cared for, and, but also notice they are men of good repute well, let me, let me stop there, wait a second, back up notice that they are men, oh look at that They are men. The church didn't choose a bunch of women to do these leadership responsibilities of serving. They chose men. They modeled. The church modeled male leadership. And notice, these men were the chief of servants. And I want you to notice something else. This is really cool to me. These men were elder-like. It's always popular to say, hey, these are the first deacons. But you know what? Their spiritual qualifications actually match a lot more the spirit of an elder. These men are speakers. They're bold. They're, they're full of a good reputation, as it says in verse 3. They were elder-like. And, and notice the lesson here. You need to be a spiritual stud. You need to have great spiritual power and strength to serve in the church in any capacity. Even in in a capacity of distributing food to widows, you need to have incredible spiritual strength to be a spiritual servant. The serving jobs, the plunging toilets, are not for the spiritual weak. It's for those who truly have perspective, who have strength in the Spirit and can speak truth to others. You need to know and you need to love doctrine if you want to be an incredible servant in the church. Notice these men were also extensions of the apostles' ministry. This flew this this kind of flew out of the the priorities that the the apostles had. That's what these men were. They were men that were kind of helping the apostles do the work of the ministry. Final, final response, final response here. We need to anticipate God's greater purpose. Order and organization helps the church. Um, It helps it grow and multiply, and that's what we see. And Luke describes how the church grows right there in our last verse. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I just love, though, I just want you to notice there how Luke describes the spiritual growth of the church. He doesn't describe it as he has in the past, he doesn't describe it as many people are added to the number, but he does do that in Acts 2.42, he doesn't describe it as many people believed, which he already did in four four. He doesn't describe it as people have a new boldness, although he did describe spiritual growth that way in 4.31. He doesn't describe it in this spirit of generosity, although he did do that in 4.32. He doesn't describe it in terms of holy fear, although he did describe it that way in 5.13. How does he describe, in a spiritual snapshot, if you will, the spiritual growth of the church? He describes it in an agricultural term increase. And then the disciples multiplied greatly. He describes it like a vine. He describes it like a plant. He describes it like a field that is filled and overflowing with plants. It's multiplying and increasing. And notice, it's, it's not the people are increasing. It's not their maturity is increasing. It's not their knowledge is increasing. What is increasing? The Word of God is increasing. The Word of God is spoken of like like a living thing in them, taking over and taking charge and filling them, flooding them, dominating their mind and their thinking. And that is what causes spiritual growth to just explode. Notice, the Word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied. You want to know what spiritual growth looks like in your life? It's the Word of God increasing in your life, dominating your life, taking over, taking charge. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen in you. It is... It is the Word of God expanding and increasing in you. The extent to which the Word of God controls you is the extent to which the Spirit of God is powerfully at work in you and through you. That is spiritual growth, the Word of God. But notice, this spiritual growth does not happen to you and does not happen in the early church without cemented priorities, right? These men... These spiritual stud mothers were this way because they were listening to teaching and preaching. And they were they were devoted, as Acts two forty two, to the Word of God and to prayer. And the apostles were. And it, it was a it was it was something that was flowing out of that priority that the church had in the Word of God and for prayer. Uh, these men were the result of that priority. Because that thing was happening they were happening. I just want to show you something interesting, and we'll close. I think this is interesting. This is the end of chapter 1. I know you're like, what? Chapter 6, man. Can't you count? This is actually the end of Acts chapter 1. If I could rearrange Acts, I would make it a really long early chapter, but it would be all of Acts 1 through 6. And you know it's the end because Luke is doing this little signature move here when he says increases and multiplies. He uses this six other times or five other times in the book of Acts. And these kind of show you panels, panels of church growth. And, and each panel each panel kind of concludes in this idea of The Word of God Increasing and Multiplying. And each panel covers about roughly five years of church history. So, the book of Acts actually covers about 30 years of early church history. And Luke just continues to kind of give us these chapters of the Word of God growing and increasing and multiplying. I'll show you what they are. Um, Acts 1.15, all the way through Acts 6.7, we see the growth of the Word in all Jerusalem. And then next week we're going to see. Well, two weeks from now we're going to see in Acts six eight through nine thirty. We're going to see the growth of the word of God among the Hellenists. That's where you're going to introduce yourself to more of these guys that you want to emulate, including an unexpected friend. And then in Acts nine thirty two through twelve twenty we see the growth of the word of God in Judea and. Syria. And then you see in Acts 13.1 through 16.5, you see the growth of the Word of God in Cyprus and Asia. Notice how it's growing and expanding. And then in 16.6 through 18.22, you see the growth of the Word into Europe. And then 18 through chapter 20, you see the growth of the Word from Ephesus. And then in chapter 21 all the way to 28, you see the Word of God growing all the way to Rome and beyond. Notice, the Word of God is the dominant theme of the book of Acts. And the church grows because the Word of God is growing. And why is the Word of God growing? Because the Spirit is empowering people to hear it. And why is the Spirit empowering people to hear it? It's because it's a part of the plan of God. And, and why is all of this happening? It's because Jesus is working to build His church. We see an exciting picture here in Acts of the Word of God continuing to grow and grow and grow. And that is what we want to be like. And so we're excited to follow that plan and those chapters as we go. Let's pray. Father God in Heaven, we thank You for um, this Word, from Your Word, and we pray that we would be strengthened through it to do Your work in the right way. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.